This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with a survivor named Belle, and Belle who is a therapist, was married to a supply junkie of a narcissist. It's a story of trauma bonding, infidelity, the hooverer of all hooverers, and taking your power back. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone, a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of toxic relationships. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning in to this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. And now, before we get to our episode with Belle, I just want to thank everyone in the Narcissist Apocalypse community for listening to the show and sharing your thoughts by email, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, a reminder, if you have not left us a review on whatever podcast service you use, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, CastBox, etc., please leave us a five-star review because it helps out the show a lot when it comes to rankings. Now, if you haven't been to our website recently, please do go there because if you want to be part of our show, you have to go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. At the top of the page, it says guest form. Click that. Take you to another page. Fill out the guest form and we'll go from there. But another way to be on the show is to be part of our Letters to Our Narcissist compilation episode. So you can also go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Find a voicemail recorder button. It's on the right-hand side of the page. It's always floating around. You can't, can't miss it. You press it. It says send voicemail. It records up to five minutes. Record as many times as you need. We're, we're accumulating these letters for a volume five of that episode. If you don't want to read the letter yourself, send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. Put letters to my narcissist in the subject line, and me or my old pal, Melissa, will read the letter for you. Other things going on on our website? We offer high-conflict parenting courses that can be found at NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. Yes, we have now partnered with an online parenting company called Online Parenting, and many of the courses we're offering were created by Bill Eddy. And if you've listened to our episode last year with a divorce lawyer named Helen, you'll know that Bill Eddy is an expert in dealing with these individuals in court, and now he's helped create many parenting courses to help you through divorce and to help your children too. 
These courses are the most widely recognized courses by family courts across the country. So if you want to support the show and are looking for guidance, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. Also, we have our Patreon. Yes, we have a Patreon, everyone. If you want to hear episodes that never made it to air, follow up episodes with former guests and much, much more, join our Patreon. Tonight, I'll be putting two episodes that never aired on there. So if you want to support the show, become a patron of our Patreon at patreon.com slash Narcissist Apocalypse. And before we get to the show, what else do I have here to talk about? Let's see. Um, I don't think anything. Um, you know, the stuff, uh, I, I'm working on a couple of things. I, I guess I'll mention it um, another day when things are more fleshed out, but uh, that's pretty much it. Um, yeah. that's it everyone uh i really hope you enjoy this episode with bell um you know we run the gamut of like we run the gamut of emotions on this one uh you're you're angry you're sad uh you're laughing uh there's crying and it's powerful at the end and i just want to thank bell for being uh a guest of the show she did a really great job and now i'm gonna get out of my way and your way here is my episode with Bell. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Bell. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm uh, very excited to be on the show to share my story. Well, thank you for being here. We already talked for a bit. We got all of that out of the way. We discussed the world. And now we're going to discuss something that, you know, um, is unfortunate happened to, to you, uh, but it sounds like you have uh, gone through uh, the process of healing, are on the other side of everything, and you're going to be a great help to everyone by sharing your story with us today. So thank you, Belle, for being here. And without further ado, I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Belle, the floor is now yours. Well, thank you so much for um, this opportunity. Like I said to you earlier, um, I have never told my story from start to finish. Um, So I'm really looking forward to being able to do so. Uh, I think it's going to be very helpful to me, and I think it will be helpful to others. Um, And at the end of my story, uh, I'm most excited about sharing the things that have helped me heal, have helped me become whole again, um, and to have uh, been able to do, develop a peaceful, happy life. So my story, I guess telling a little bit about myself, um, I, am a, uh, I am a therapist and I specialize in addiction and trauma. And with that work, I do see um, a lot of uh, patients and individuals who have dealt with various forms of narcissistic abuse in their life. Families, siblings, partners, um, employers. So um, it, that that this has happened to me um, has helped me be very much more empathetic with my patients and much more supportive with my patients. So um, I guess that's a silver lining. Um, so we're going to start this story a long, long time ago, back in uh, 1985. 
when I was a senior in high school. And uh, uh, I'm sorry, 1984, I was a junior and uh, the X-hole was a senior. And uh, in high school, I was extremely shy. I was very reserved. I wanted to be invisible. I didn't want people to see me, to know me. Uh, if I could have, like, crawled into, the, crawled into my locker and just done school from my locker, I would have. Um, and the X-hole was the absolute opposite of me. He was outgrowing, gregarious. His family was very wealthy. He played on the football team. Um, you know, he was cocky. He was self-assured. Uh, he attracted people to him like a magnet. Of course, I had a huge crush on him. Um, but it never went anywhere because, frankly, he didn't see me. So high school ends. People go around their their lives doing their thing. Um, and we come to the era of Facebook. And Facebook has a lot to answer for in my in my book. <laughs> but um, so over one, tw- over twenty years later. Yes. Yes. Well, actually, yeah, about about twenty five years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Facebook comes along, and uh, one day I get a friend request from the Exult, and I I accept the friend request and. Um, I guess it was about two days later, I woke up in the morning and, you know, I looked at my phone as you do. And I had like, without exaggeration, probably 30 notifications that this individual had liked my pictures. Make sure you get notification of that. <clears throat> and I mean, he had gone back like years um, with my pictures and so I sent him a uh, Facebook message, and basically it said, um, A, either you're interested in me, or B, I need to get a restraining order. Could you please let me know which one that is? And that just kind of started That started the, um, the interaction, which eventually led to what it led to. Um, so Facebook messaging, um, went to text messaging, went to phone calls. First red flag, of course, in hindsight, was the contact and the communication was incessant. Um, I had just come out of a relationship where the individual was very closed off, very cold. He was very inattentive. Um, And so for this to be happening, it felt like like rain in the desert. Um, It felt like just so much um, excitement, you know, my, my heart would pound when I would see a text from him because it was always something funny or uh, entertaining or flattering or, you know, um, and my, my poor, my poor little um, hungry, hungry soul just absorbed it. Um, like man in the desert. And so he lived in a different city than I did. Uh, we lived about probably five or six states apart. And, um, you know, my state, my, my hometown was his hometown. And so we connected a lot with that, you know, talking about people that we knew and, um, where are they now? And so this bond developed through that. Um, and I have to say, you know, obviously part of it was he was, um, as most narcissists are, ridiculously good looking. I, I mean, like, ridiculously good looking. But he also was charming, funny, uh, very smart. He has a Juris Doctorate. 
um, he was, uh, you know, he sent me, sent me gifts. Uh, he sent me flowers all the way from where he was. And so we had been talking for probably about six weeks. And, um, I felt like a teenage girl, you know, um, it's hard to describe the feeling, but it was definite euphoria. It was definite. It, it was just one of the best feelings I've ever felt. Um, and of course, he was love bombing me. Um, I was in graduate school at that time, and it was very difficult because I was a single mom of three children. Um, I was in graduate school full time, and I also worked full time. Uh, I was a very tired person who had very little time for me. And one of the things that started to happen was he started to want me to come where he was and spend a weekend with him. And, you know, at that point in time, I was actually writing my final paper for graduate school. And, um, if you've ever been in a situation like that, something like that, something like a thesis or something, it eats your world. It is your world. It's your life. Every, every spare second is spent on this research and on this work. And that is what I was in the middle of. And to take time off from that was going to be very detrimental to me, but he wore me down. He wouldn't, he wouldn't take no for an answer. Um, uh, and again, another red flag, boundary violating, not accepting a no. Um, but to me it was just, Oh, he just really is so interested in me that he, he, he's, he really, really wants me to see him. He really wants to see me. So I should interject right about here with um, the fact that um, I did find out from him. He told me he was very upfront. He sent me all the newspaper links and everything. Um, he was a convicted felon, and he was going to prison um, for a year. And so his uh, the, the crime that he was convicted of uh, was uh, computer-related. And that is a whole separate story, but summing it up, he was a whistleblower in a major case against a major uh, online university where he uncovered a whole lot of bad stuff that was going on. He filed a whistleblower lawsuit. The company turned around and filed a suit against him for uh, hacking into their computer system to obtain the documents that he used to file the whistleblower suit. So it's complicated. Um, and it, as much as huh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sir, was all of that the truth or was that like, it, it absolutely, okay. yeah, it was, it was the truth. Um, and how I verified the truth was, uh, this story was actual, um, it wasn't just like local news. It was world news. Okay. So if you Google this man, um, what you will find is many, 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 many articles about that okay. and about what happened and about how the general consensus was. Uh, from the legal community, from uh, the education community, that he basically was um, the sacrificial lamb for what went on. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say this. The whistleblower lawsuit that he filed, um, he was asking for $900 million in damages. So now we get back to this was not an altruistic act that he did. He saw dollar signs. Okay. And he, and he fully believed he was going to win this suit. Um, and that there would be, because if you file a whistleblower lawsuit with the government, um, because it was the government has to file it with you, say the government had been awarded $900 million, he would have received himself $90 million. He knew that that's what he was after. He was not trying 
to right or wrong, he he saw this as dollar signs, as I later so, remember. So um, I think we might have had a, a couple of stories before about something or, or like this. So in in a way, he was um, complicit in something, and then ever the opportunist that yes. here is a way to make myself look like. Uh, a saint in one way or um, someone who has a conscience, but it's really here is an opportunity to make money and look good at the same time and I can get off scot-free in a sense is his thinking. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yes. Um, and just, you know, as an aside, money – Money is so important to this man. Money is more important than his family, than his child, than um, – I'm telling you, this man, as I later found out, would probably kill his grandmother for $5, and I'm not kidding. Yeah, because um, when, when you're getting, uh, you know, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, but uh, you know, when talking with a lot of people, you know, when you're, I think when you're getting to the very high level, um, people who are very thought uh, out, uh, very well planned, uh, I guess on the sociopath, uh, very very high level. Um, they might seem like they would never committed a crime their whole entire life, but if given an opportunity to get away with scot-free with something, they might take it. 100%. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, and as I later found out, this was not his first um, "quote unquote" criminal um, enterprise. Whenever he and this is another red flag too. If you hear someone tell you these kinds of stories, um, this is a red flag. This this actually points to uh, more along the lines of uh, sociopathology rather than MPD. But um, when he was younger, he would break into houses. And he would um, he wouldn't necessarily steal anything, but it was just the um, excitement of breaking into a house, which of course that's messed up. <laughs> you know, um, neurotypical people don't do things like that, but he did. Um, you know, we could get into his upbringing. He was he was um, raised by a um, histrionic narcissistic mother. Can His you ex- can you explain for people that don't know um, what histrion? Because uh, it's a cluster B personality disorder. It is uh, yes. Can you explain uh, histrionic so people understand what the ins and outs of that is? So, um, if you're familiar with Scarlett O'Hara, she was the prime example of histrionic personality disorder. If something wasn't going her way, um, or if she sensed. Uh, something was was uh, someone was pulling away from her. Something along those lines. It's a lot like borderline personality disorder, except for histrionic people. Um, you know, they're much more dramatic about it. They're very manipulative with their extreme emotions, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and and it's, it has a lot of the MPD 
hallmarks as well. You know, they're very self-centered, this kind of thing. But how they get their needs met is by basically throwing fits, being manipulated that way. Basically, if you're with a histrionic personality disordered individual, cluster B, you don't want to make them mad or tell them no or deny them something that they desire. Because uh, if you do, they're they're going to absolutely let you know for an extremely long time how upset they are with you. And it goes on to like an extreme level. And, and they're very much just all about themselves as well. So his mom was, uh, it was histrionic. Yes. Yes. Obviously I don't diagnose. Um, and she had not been diagnosed. That was just my observation as a clinical professional that, that that's what I saw. Mm -hmm. Now I will say for my narcissist, um, he, I, I think it was kind of a rare thing to be able to see to say he was a, is a diagnosed narcissistic personality disordered individual, um, through all of his court cases and everything, uh, the FBI actually had him speak to a, uh, psychiatrist, the psychiatrist did an assessment and the psychiatrist is the one who diagnosed him with MPD. So this guy's this this he was the real deal. He's the real deal. Uh, this is not just um, you know certain behaviors that indicate the possibility of narcissistic personality disorder. He's diagnosed, mm-hmm. um, and I knew that, and I blew it off. I was like, oh, this sweet man. There's no way he loves me. He does things for me. He sends me flowers. He takes care of things. He changes the oil in my car. No way. Um. So I'm going to back back up just a little bit to uh, him really wanting me to come to where he lived uh, and and meet him face to face. Um, and he badgered me and badgered me and badgered me and badgered me and badgered me. And one night I was sitting in my uh, class at school. I had been at work since 7 a.m. I got off work at 4. I drove straight to my, my school at 4 First class was at 4.30, seventh class was at 7.30, and it was over at 10.30. And by the time 10 o'clock hit, I was, I was so tired. I was just so tired, and all my defenses were down. And I was just worn slick from life. And he sent me a text, and he said, I bought us tickets to um, a beach location for next weekend. I want you to come to the beach with me. And I was just like... Um, I can't refuse the beach. <laughs> and so I flew to Fort Lauderdale to meet him. And I remember a, a, a very pivotal moment in my life was I, I walked down, you know, heading toward baggage claim, and he was waiting for me there. He was kind of leaning against the wall, and he was looking at his phone, and I saw him before he saw me. And I just froze. And I and the thought in my mind was, if I take one more step further, um, my life will change forever. I, I don't know how and I don't know why, but my life will change forever. And for a split second, I was ready to turn around and walk the other way. And then uh, he looked up and he saw me, and that was the end of that. So that Florida trip was the first time he and I had seen each other face-to-face uh, since high school. 30-something years, Um, and the chemistry was nuts, obviously. It it usually is with the dark, 
Um, we had truly fantastic three days. Everything was great. But another red flag that I noticed was that man talked nonstop. Like, like he never stopped talking and he always talked about himself and he was talking about how he had been done wrong by the government and how, um, you know, this, this person had done him wrong and that person had done him wrong. And this ex-wife was crazy. And, um, you know, just everybody, it was everybody but him that was at fault. And of course the narrative that he was telling me, I didn't know any background. I didn't know any history about this man at all. Um, and I, of course, thought, well, this poor, poor man, he just needs love. He just needs someone to love him. I will be that person. I will love him. I will care for him. I will nurture him. Well, he was um, reporting to prison in about six weeks. He went to a prison camp, which, um, uh, you know, it's prison, yes. But they're in dorms. They um, play bocce ball. They have a softball field. You know what I mean? Um, this was not orange jumpsuit. This was definitely a white collar, um, white collar deal. Um, and so, in between him report that that trip to Florida and him reporting, there was about a two month gap. And when he got back home to Florida. I'm sorry, to where he lived. Um, he called me about two days later, and he said, I cannot not spend these, this time uh, before, I, before I report with you. I have to be with you. And, of course, I'm just like, oh, okay, come on, yay. Um, and also, by this point in time, the first time that we met in Florida, he told me he loved me. And, of course, I was just crazy in love with him too um which of course is not love it's infatuation it's a whole different ball game um so at this at this point you know the florida trip has ended he now wants to spend those two months with you he said i love you yes you're hooked completely Oh my God! The hook is in. So the, the the so the things that are running the hook uh, for you specifically, how much of, um, I guess the childhood version of you and how you felt about him back then and who you were back then plays a role in, um ignoring things or oh yes so can you kind of say like what i guess what are the biggest hooks for you that were like check the boxes like i'm in i'm in i'm in sold well um whenever i was in high school it was very very difficult for me i have a uh, facial port wine stain birthmark and that birthmark um my my childhood years and my teenage years, adolescent years, were extremely difficult because I looked very different uh, than other people and other teens and other kids. And so I spent these formative years where your sense of self develops with the knowledge I was different and not different in a way that made me good but different in a way that people responded and reacted to me in a negative way you know i was 
pointed at, stared at, called names. Um, and so, like I said, in high school, all I wanted to do was disappear. I did not want to be seen. I didn't want people to see me. I didn't want people to get to know me. Um, I just wanted to get through the hell that was high school and move on into my life. Mm-hmm. What happened was my first husband um, that I married, was I was 19. And his thing was, um, you are so ugly that you should be grateful I am marrying you. And, of course, being so young, um, I, I was. I was just so grateful that somebody wanted to marry me, you know, and, and it, and it really, really fucked with my head and my self-esteem and what I would accept and what I wouldn't accept. So that really was the groundwork for this future relationship, being able to become what it became because he told me I was beautiful. He told me, he told me that my birthmark to him made me even more beautiful because it was so unique and because I was so unique and that I was this precious person because of it. Does that make sense? So he like took the thing that I had the most, um, insecurities about and he lifted me up about it, you know, and that felt damn good. And as far as being seen, did you feel like for most of your life, you, you maybe personally, your views, your beliefs, um, that you weren't seen in that sense as well? Did that have anything to do with it? That you were being heard yes. and being, you were, you were a team and it was maybe the first time you felt like you were part of a, a team where you ma- it was, your opinion yeah. mattered? Well, it was the first time that anybody has just been so laser focused on me with their attention, their time, um, their, um, I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, whenever somebody, when a narcissist turns his, his attention on you, you feel like I, I can't, it's hard to describe the feeling. You feel giddy. You feel high. You feel high. That's what it is. You feel high. Um, and you just, I remember just, I would walk around with just this dumbass grin on my face all the time. And my body felt like it was effervescent whenever I would talk to him or see him or be around him. I mean, it it, is such a bizarre way to describe it, but it's how I felt. In a sense of, in your mind, this person could have chosen anyone. Anyone. Yes. they, They chose me. And they chose me. Yeah. Abs, that is that is exactly what it was. He could have chosen any woman, but he chose me. So probably what needs to be uh, brought into the equation as well is that um, what I did not know was that he was, um, in fact, legally married to a woman where he lived. I didn't know this. I had no idea. Um as we progressed, you know, right before he went into, uh, went to report to prison, he told me, he's like, you know, about, um, I'm going to call her Mary, you know, about Mary. Um, you know, we, I told you, you know, what our situation was whenever I went through the courts, when I went through all of this stuff, she abandoned me. Um, she left me on my own. She yelled at me. Now I'm going to have to now I'm going to have to support you for the rest of your life because you're never going to have a job. 
And so in my mind, I'm like, oh, my God, what a horrible woman to do this to him. And he said, you know, she's filed for divorce. Um, you know, this it's all been done. The fat lady has sunk. Um, and I believed him because I didn't see any evidence to the contrary. This is the man who came across the country and stayed with me for eight weeks before he reported. There was absolutely no indication that there was any other woman at all in his life because um, every, every, he was just laser focused on me. Um, later, I discovered that that was a lie, a huge lie. Um, also, just during that time frame of getting to know him, I also I also caught him in a lot of lies, just just little lies. Do you know what I mean? Um, lies about how much money he had. Lies about. His, that he was working because when we first met, he told me that he was working for the American Bar Association because he was a uh, he well he was an attorney uh, he was disbarred so um, you know I, but he wasn't working he didn't have a job but I didn't know that until he then until later you know there was so much that he kept away from me that he kept hitting you know he only gave me very, very small dribbles and drabs of his truth. And I was so freaking high on him that I didn't, um, I didn't, I just let it go, you know? So he comes to, um, my home state, um, which his mother still lives here. And, um, so he stayed with her. And I remember the first time he took me over to meet his mom, what he said was, Mom, this is Belle, and I love her, and I want to be with her for the rest of my life. This is like eight weeks into us meeting, you know what I mean? And of course, I'm just like, he loves me. You know, you introduced me to his mom. This is this is real. You know, you wouldn't introduce me to his mom if this wasn't real. So um, uh, he reported to prison on October 31st. He self-reported, got on a plane, flew away, um, and his prison time was very difficult. He was only in prison for about 10 months, and then he was released to a uh, halfway house. While he was incarcerated, the love bombing just um, increased exponentially. I, he wrote me two, three letters every day. He, he made art. He, he made me a purse and leather shop. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just... And, of course, looking back, it's, I, I'm just, like, stunned at myself. But I loved him, and I, I wanted to show him I'm here. I'm here in your, in your freedom, and I'm here in your incarceration. I love you. And he was uh, incarcerated in a place that was very far away from my home. And he, before he went into prison, he gave me a large sum of money so that I could fly up there and see him and visit him as much as possible. And I did. And so, and remember, I'm still in grad school. <laughs> so and, I'm taking, and you have kids. And I have kids. Thankfully, my children, uh, my oldest son was, was um, he was independent on his own. My middle son was in college um, at a large university and he was living on campus. And then my daughter, um, I had 50-50 custody because she was younger. So just a quick question. What did they sure. think of this? They didn't know. Okay. Okay. They didn't know. Um, 
which is another red flag. If you're keeping things secret like that, it's a pretty good indication that you know that the people in your life are not going to be approving. Um, so, yeah, uh, they didn't know about him. Okay. Um, so he, he reports. Um, I went to visit him, I think, four times um, in, in the time that he was there. Visits were it was all there's a whole different thing going and visiting someone on a regular basis in federal prison. It it is just a fascinating experience. Um it wasn't bad, it wasn't scary, you know, it, it wasn't they have a playground for the children and uh you can go sit in a room and you sit sit at tables together, you can play cards, you can you know what I mean? It mm-hmm. wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't a bad situation it was just a weird situation um and so that went on for about 10 months and then he was released um he actually was released late because he got in trouble um because his crime was a computer crime he was not allowed access to computers and the inmates were allowed access to the computers and they could send email like each email costs like 10 cents um, and what he did was he accessed a computer using another inmate's information. And they caught him, and so he actually spent 30 days in the hole, which the hole is not where you want to go. Um, and him being in the hole really did a lot of damage, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, so he was released. He came here. He went to the halfway house. You know, uh, halfway house rules were really lax. I could uh, I could visit him. We could meet for lunch, you know. So, uh, and he had unlimited. Oh my god, he had unlimited access to a phone, and he called me all the time. I mean, like all the time, hours and hours and hours. And he expected me to be on the phone with him for hours and hours and hours, even though I was in college and had kids, and, you know. Yada yeah. He had very little care or understanding for what my needs were at that time. Um, and it was very much, what was me? I've been incarcerated. All I wanted to do is talk to you. Now I can talk to you. Now you're too busy to talk to me. That kind of thing. So when he was in the halfway house, things were pretty good. He was happy. He was excited. He was making plans, um, for the future. It looked like things. He's brilliant. He's a brilliant man. Um, you know, he's, he, like I said, he has a Juris Doctorate. You can't be dumb and get a Juris Doctorate. Um, so when he was released from the halfway house, he went to go live with his mom for a while. And um, within probably a week of him being released, things started to go real bad. Um, because while he was incarcerated, we made all these plans. Um, you know, he was going to, um, we were going to get a house together. We were going to get married. We were going, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, he... What do they call that? Future faking? Yes. Yeah. He future faked me to an excessive degree. And, you know, I believed him. Um, to me, my word, if I if I use my word, my word is my word. And, and it was hard for me to understand when I discovered everything that I discovered that it, it just had been a, a total um, manipulation and lies. Mm-hmm. So... Um, he did finally move into a house, his own house, actually very close to my house. We, we didn't live together. Um, he started a business in our hometown, um, and, you know, he was working really hard at the business, and I helped him with the business. So this October is when he was released, and so 
we were building this business. Of course, again, can I repeat, graduate school, full-time work, raising my kids. And I took on helping him start his business. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was October, November, April of the next year. And I will tell you, during this time frame, things were not good. Um, his rage started to show. Um, the mask slipped more than once. Um, and I started to kind of see that, um, the person that I had known wasn't the person that he was, but I made excuses. Well, come on, look at what he's been through in his life. Of course he's mad. Of course he's upset, but he would go on these, these really disturbing rants. Um, and he would see a police officer in a police car and he would say, I hope that motherfucker gets killed in the line of duty. Things like this. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty major things. Um, and I would justify it and whatever because I was, you know, in in my um, state of complete luminance with him. April rolls around and, you know, he's talking to me about moving in, in together and getting a house together and all this other stuff. So I'm looking around and um, then one day he calls me and he says, I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. And, um, you know, peace be with you. Actually, he didn't call me. I'm sorry. He sent me an email. Um, and in the email, you know how certain words just get burned in your brain. He said, upon further reflection, I don't need you. And that was very hurtful because I had given so much to him um, and had done so with getting nothing in return. I just was doing these things because I loved him so deeply um, and I wanted things to be okay for him. I wanted things to be smooth for him. And so I just, I gave of myself and gave of myself and gave of myself. So, so from, uh, from the beginning of when you started dating to uh, that point, how long was that? Well, I, it's kind of more marked from the time he got home from prison. Oh, okay. Yeah. So how long was it uh, that you were out? Uh, so he was in prison for how long? Um, ten months. And then he was out of prison for how long? He had been out when this happened in April. He had been out for about six months. Okay. So at this point... Uh, you know, I guess in that six months, you were being devalued here and yes. there more often uh, than before. And then I guess being uh, love bombed. Uh, and did you, did you, were you getting, um, were you feeling, at, I guess at this point that, um, oh, this is something couples kind of go through, we're working on things or things like that. And then, um, this happened or were you were like fine at this point, you know, still in this fantasy land of kind of what was going on in a sense and then really um, blindsided by him just cutting it off? I was blindsided okay. because it was a very, very sudden, you know, we, I had kind of felt him pulling away some, um, but we talked about it, and I thought that we, you know, we kind of come to an understanding. And, you know, in, within that time frame, things have been very difficult with him because of his anger, because of his behavior, some of the things that he had done and said. Um, you know, there was definitely, I would call it a mini devaluation that was going on, and then there was a discard, a hard discard mm-hmm. with the email. Um, and so 
this was when I discovered that um, not only was he not divorced, um, he was still very much talking to, involved with, and in contact with his wife. And, um, of course, I was just absolutely I, – I just couldn't believe it, you know, um, that he would do that. And so he didn't know that I knew about his ex-wife or wife, actually, being in the picture. And it just it just broke me. It just – oh, my God. I You know, that period of time, my family was so worried about me. I dropped probably 25 times – pretty 25 pounds. I cried all the time. I struggled to do my job, which I had a very difficult job. I was actually working with, I was working in the county jail with prisoners. And so, um, yeah, it's a pretty rough job. And then all of a sudden I get this email with those words on, upon further reflection, I don't need you. Um, and that just, it broke me. Um, that was a bad time. It was a dark time in me, for me. Um, so that was April, May, um, my birthday was in June and out of nowhere, I get a call on my birthday and, um, you know, wishing me happy birthday and blah, blah, blah. And then basically what it was, was just him circling back around, you know, with the love bombing, because guess what? Things weren't working out very well with his wife. Um, and so I was his pocket supply. He knew I was good supply. And so, you know, he comes back around like, can't we just be friends and blah, 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 and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I said, well, where's, where's, where's Mary? And he said, oh, she's, she's back up in, um, uh, where they lived. Um, and he's like, it's over with her. And I said, look, I'm not, I don't believe you and I'm not going to believe you until, um, I see divorce papers. When I see divorce papers, then we can we can talk again, um, possibly try to build a friendship and go from there. And so again, I didn't speak to him for quite some time. And then I found out that his wife had moved to where we are. Um, and we had been prior to that. He and I had been talking. You know, he had a house. Um, when he broke up with me um, in April, uh, I had some of his stuff and some of the paperwork. You know, that I thought was pretty important. So. I uh, took it to his house, and the house was completely empty. It was completely cleared out, totally cleared out, like he had never lived there. And, of course, I'm thinking, what the hell? Well, in all of this interim time, like I said, this is, this, this is kind of where it gets kind of murky and muddy and weird. She had moved here, gotten a job in, um, in the city uh, outside where I live, and um, – they had gotten a house together. And this is all the whole time where he's like basically telling me, no, we're broken up. She's, you know, he was running two games and he was just waiting to see which game was most beneficial. And hers, and she was more beneficial. Um, she, she had a very high power job. She made a lot of money. She could provide for him in a way that I cannot provide financially. <laughs> Therapists don't make a lot of money. I'm just telling you, you know, we, we uh, definitely do our work because we love our work. Um, and so I just, I just, you know, washed my hands of the deal, tried to move on with my life and tried to, tried to just recover. 
And I was starting to recover and I was starting to get stronger. And I had actually started to see somebody and he found out that I was seeing somebody and he, the love bombing started in earnest. And of course this time I was like, no, you live with your wife in a house here. No, this is not happening. Um, and then one day I came home from work and he was sitting on my front porch with, um, divorce papers. And so they got divorced, which I later found out she filed for divorce from him because of how abusive he was to her. Um, it wasn't him filing for divorce or ending their relationship. It was her because she just had enough of this shit. Um, because I don't believe this was probably was the first time that he had mistreated her in this manner. Um, you know, cause if they do it once, they've done it before and he was extremely practiced, extremely practiced in what he did. So like the love drunk addict that I was, um, within a month, I let him move in with me and he moved in with me. Things were going pretty well. And he actually at Christmas that year, um, under the Christmas lights, got down on one knee and proposed to me. Um, and like a dumbass, I said, yes. And I, uh, you know, at the moment I'd never been happier in my life. Um, I had the person that I wanted so much, even though, even though all of this had happened, I felt like I had won, you know, um, there's a, a wonderful, wonderful resource, um, that I wanted to mention. It's called leave a cheater, gain a life. Um, and the lady who wrote it, her name is Tracy Shorn. And I wish I would have had that book then because I, I would have understood, um, that what was happening was there was a trauma bond with him. And, um, that trauma bond was very, very strong and it had never gone away. And so, yeah, I, I accepted his proposal. We moved, moved in together and, um, things were amazing. Uh, we got married. Yeah. I married him like a big old idiot. <laughs> I married him. Um, because I believed, I believed, I believed what he told me. I believed he loved me. I believed when he told me that I was, you know, the only, the only person who understood him, the only person that got him, the only person that, gave him what he needed. The only person I was so sweet. I was so kind. I was so loving. I was so generous. And I was all those things. I would, uh, I was, I'm a very nurturing individual, which is probably why I got into the profession I got into. I, I, it's important to me to make the people around me feel loved and nurtured and cared for. And we go back to the fact that he was raised by a narcissistic or a histrionic mother and um, his father was extremely physically and mentally abusive. In fact, his father beat his brother so bad at one point in time that he put him in the hospital. And he was actually charged his, – his father was charged with domestic violence and was placed in jail. And this was in the 80s when that just did not happen. So that can tell you the severity of the dysfunction that he grew up in. Um, and I was – very happy and very willing to give him that nurturing love that he so desperately needed. I read to him every night. I read him a book every night. We must have in our time together read probably 20 or 30 books that I read to him. I petted his head. I rubbed his back. I did everything 
for this man. And I did it with love because I wanted to at first. (laughs) Um, So we get married and things are going pretty well. However, his temper is still there. The rage is still there. And it was very difficult for me to cope with. Um, Then he, um, you know, being a felon, it's extremely difficult to get a job. Um, But I actually found someone that gave him a job working um, in the oil and gas industry, um, utilizing his his Juris Doctorate. And and it was a great job with great people. And, um, you know, he started that job and... And it was smooth for a while, and then they did something that made him mad, and he threw a big screaming fit in the office. They didn't fire him, which I couldn't believe it. Um, they should have, for sure. You know, that just showed me this dude can't even regulate himself at, at work, you know. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's a, it kind of is a struggle for me to truly remember all the things that happened because I do believe our brains when it's subjected to that kind of trauma that we don't understand our brains protect ourselves by uh, hiding some of these memories. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. And so I have a really hard time recalling some of the things that happened and some of the things he said. Um, My family is extremely close knit. I have a large family um, we don't fight. We don't argue. Everybody, I mean, there's just it's just nothing but love in my family. And so for 20 years, my family and I have been going on this beach vacation. And we go every other year. We go to the same beach because we just love it. And we rent the same house because we love it. You know, and it's just kind of like, it's almost like Groundhog Day without that vacation because we just did the exact same thing that we always do. And we love it. I was so excited for him to go. I was so excited at the thought of him seeing this thing that I love so much, this place that is so meaningful me to me. I have visions of he and I walking on the beach, you know, um, when the moon was out, this place, the island has these swings set up all around the island. And I, I just had dreamed of sitting on these swings with him and snuggling up next to him and watching the moon rise. Well, when we got there, it was nothing but complaining. Um, it was, it was miserable. It was really miserable. He didn't want me paying any attention to any of my family members or spending time with my family members. He wanted me to be completely focused on him. And we had been at the beach for about three or four days when he completely lost his shit and started screaming and throwing things. And this is not how my family is. We, we don't do that. We don't scream and throw things. It was, it was, it was a, shocking thing for my family to see him behave in this manner. I was humiliated. Um, it was terrible. Um, he accused me of not loving him. He accused me of, oh my God, he accused me of being a lesbian, um, which whatever, no problem with that, you know, at all, but that's not true. But he threw that at me because I wasn't paying him enough attention. And, you know, the fit that he threw was worse than any two-year-old tantrum I have ever seen. I mean, I'm talking like pounding his fist on the ground, and I always, it, was, it was nightmarish, mm-hmm. nightmarish. And needless to say, there were no walks on the beach. There were no romantic moments on the swing. You know, it was, um, it was just me dancing around him, trying to keep him happy so that my family 
didn't see his truth. I didn't want them to see who he was. We got home from the vacation, and that is really probably when the devaluation started in force. He would say things to me like, I can't believe you're a therapist. You must be the worst therapist. I don't even know how you help anybody. You can't even help me. And I would tell him, well, I'm your wife. I'm not, I'm not your therapist. And he actually said to me, he said, well, I, when I married you, I really didn't want a wife. I wanted you to be my therapist. I wanted you to fix me. I wanted you to help me. I wanted you to, um, you know, help me release these things that are in me. And I'm like, dude, I'm your wife. I cannot, I, that's not, I can't do that. So he would downgrade my profession. He would downgrade my work. I was the clinical director of a uh, treatment center, and he negated my job. He made fun of my work, you know, that it was worthless, that it was useless, you know. He would say, those teenagers aren't going to get sober. You're not doing anything. You're just beating your head against the wall. You're wasting your time. You're not valued. Your whole profession is bullshit, you know. Very, very much hitting me where it hurt because he knew, because I shared with him, that I felt had a little bit of an imposter syndrome going on. I mean, I think anytime you're in a profession like what I'm in, you fear that. You fear that that you're not as adequate, that you're not a good person, uh, not a good therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just hammered that in because that was my biggest fear as not not being an adequate helper to these people. But um, oh, and he he devalue i'm i'm super low maintenance like i don't get my nails done i don't get my toes done i just don't give a crap i wear birkenstocks my clothes are comfy um you know i have hair this long and straight i just i'm not high maintenance and he made so many comments about that can you put some makeup on can you curl your hair can't you wear a pair of heels i feel like i'm walking around with like um a slob you know he just constantly devalued my appearance, my weight, my, um, my goals, my desires, my dreams. Um, he put them down. The other part of him was that I never could actually talk, um, to him about anything because he was definitely so self-centered that it was all about him. Um, even if I was talking about something that was going on with me, I could tell, you know how you can tell when no one's listening, uh, and their eyes are just kind of glazed over, mm-hmm. and you know they're not paying any attention. That was him all the time. So I just got to where I just quit talking. And he never noticed. <laughs> he never noticed that I quit talking. Because when he walked in the door, it was nonstop talking about him, his day at work, complaining about this, worrying about that, da 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 So uh, time goes on, and um, there's a lot that happened. There's so much that happened. Um, one of the things... Are you are you believing everything he's saying, or are you um, just keeping quiet because you don't want the argument, um, and kind of hoping it goes away, like the blow ups and things along those lines? Yeah, um, because anytime I would express to him how hurtful something was, he he didn't care. Okay, he laughed. He would laugh at me, and he'd be like, well, that's your problem, not my problem. All I am is telling you the truth. Um, you know, and the thing, too, that um, I found very telling and very interesting about him as a human is whenever we all moved in, when we moved in together, um, you know, we were putting away stuff. 
then he has this tub, um, like, you know, one of those plastic Sterilite tubs. And um, when I opened it to see what was in it, what was in it, the whole thing was completely full of pictures, cards, letters, notes, all this stuff from every single woman that he had ever been with. And there were letters in there. So he had been married prior to me. Um, and as I found out later, I didn't have this information at that moment, but what I found out later was he had cheated on every single woman he had ever been with. And he never left a woman without there being another woman waiting. So he always had supply before he left his current source of supply. And these women would send him letters and cards and things like that. I'm so sorry. I did this wrong. I did that wrong. I promise you I'm going to change. Just please, please don't leave me. Please give me another chance. Just these begging letters. And so I jokingly called it his tub of trophies. Um, but that's really what it was. Mm-hmm. It was his trophy tub. Um, and he would periodically go through it, read the letters. And I really think that it was just some bizarre some bizarre thrill that he got reading the pain that he caused these women. I vowed when I saw that tub, I was like, I, that my, there will be shit for me in that tub. I can promise you that <laughs> if this ends, uh, uh-uh. um, so that tub just kind of, to me, showed spoke a lot about who he was. So, you know, periodically we would have really great times. We had a lot of fun together. Uh, we liked the same weird stuff. You know, we we loved going to estate sales and garage sales, and we'd spend our Saturdays just driving around town. Doing, you know, there was so much. There was a lot of good things that that were a part of our relationship that kept me going and kept me hooked. My mom adored him. He adored my mom. Well, I thought he did, but as I found out later, it was just another tool. Um, so I'm going to bring us to 2018. Um, and, and with an understanding and knowledge, there was a whole lot of things that happened. Well, I'll, I'll, the summer of 2018, he started to accuse me of having an affair. He accused me of having dating profiles. He accused me of having secret Instagram accounts where I could just talk to men on. He um, he would follow me if I went out with a friend um, because he would tell me that he didn't believe that I was going where I was going. Dude, I wasn't doing anything, like nothing. I mean, I like, went to work. I went to yoga. I went to um, maybe once a week I saw a friend, if that, and the rest of the time I was at home. I wasn't on dating sites. I wasn't, I didn't have secrets. None of that was happening. But he started saying these things to me and pulling away from me and pulling away from me. And I could feel it. And it just was so scary to me because I didn't understand. I had no idea what was happening. I didn't know what was going on. Well, then we go to fall of 2018 and all of a sudden he's working late and he's, um, Dressing differently. And you know where this is going. Mm-hmm. Um, he's telling me that he's he's with friends. And, you know, I just never did check up because I just didn't want to know the truth, right? So Christmas comes along. Um, we had a great Christmas. It was really sweet. You know, my family was there. My kids were there. We opened presents. We, you know, like a little Walton family singing carols and all that stuff. 
New Year's night, we had a couple friend over and rang in the new year. Again, I, just totally normal. Nothing was wrong. New Year's Day, um, he told me he was going to go play or go watch football with one of his really good friends. The game was from 2 to like 5, I think, and he said, I'll be home at 5. Well, it's 8.30 and he's not home. And I'm calling our friend and my, my, our friend said, oh, he left at like 5. So here we have 5 to 8.30 or so without knowing where he is. Mm-hmm. And I start texting and calling, and I sent him a text, and I said, hey, where are you? Are you coming home? I, you know, I made dinner. And he said, well, I'm still over at his house. I know he's not because I just talked to him. He's not there. And I said, well, I said you're not there. So, And he goes, oh, oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we just left. We're going to Henry Hudson's. And I was like, um, okay. So I got in my car, and I went to Hudson's. He's not there. I call him. You're not at Hudson's. Where are you? Oh, we went to majors. We went to majors. We just left. We just went to majors. So yeah, I'm at majors. So I'm going to, I'm going to come straight home. So of course I drive to my, to this other place. He ain't there. I get home. He gets home before me and he calls me. He's like, where are you? Why aren't you here? And I said, you know why I'm not here. I was looking for you because I know you're lying to me. Well, by the time I got home, he had packed a suitcase. Um, he had gathered up his important paperwork. He had picked up the dog. And when I got home, he said, I'm leaving you. I'm out. And then he told me, he said, I know, I heard you last night. I heard what you said. What the hell did I say? And he said, you said that the day you married me, that your life was ruined. Chad, I did not say that. I know I didn't say that. And he said, I even called our friends and they said they heard you say that. And he said, I can't be with a woman who says things like that. No, you got busted. I caught you in a lie. I caught you in a big lie. And you don't want to, you don't want to have to face up to it. You don't want to have to admit what you've done. So you're making up this lie to put it on me as the reason that you're leaving. Um, he gaslit me so hard with that. I mean, he had me questioning everything. Did I say that? Did I actually say that? Did I not know? I mean, we weren't drinking or anything. And it was just, but he had to tell me I had said that. He had to convince me I had said that so that I would accept responsibility for him leaving. So he left me on New Year's Day of 2019. Mm-hmm. He went to go stay with our mutual friend for a couple of weeks. And that two-week period, we um, we talked and, you know, tried to figure it out. And I just, I begged him to come home. I just wanted him to come home. And he did. And he came home on, I believe it was Sunday. No, I'm sorry. It was Saturday night, a um, couple of weeks after that. He had told me that he was going to poker night with a friend. And this friend had had poker nights a lot. Um, so I didn't question it at all. Until the next morning, he came home. He said he'd be home at 11. He was home at 11. How was your poker night? It was great. Didn't win any money, but, you know, it was fun to be around the guys. Um, And I'm like, cool, glad you had fun. I'm so glad you're home. Well, Sunday morning, I was flipping through Facebook while he was still asleep. And I saw a picture of the guy whose house he was supposed to have been at and his wife um, at a play the night before when he was supposed to be playing poker with my husband 
And so when the ex-hole woke up, I asked him, I was like, hey, you know, were you at his house? Yeah, I was at his house. Okay, well, was he there? Yeah, he was there. Of course he was there. It's his house. Why did he be there? And then I told him, well, I saw this picture, and he he wasn't there. Um, so where were you last night? And instead of um, facing what he had done and telling me the truth, what he did instead was he um, – I'm sorry, because this was one of the worst days of my life. He became very violent, and he punched holes in the wall. He pulled me out of the bed, screaming at me and spitting in my face and telling me that I was crazy and that I was a stalker and that, you know, my whole life was online and I needed to get offline. And I was obsessed with the Internet. I was obsessed with um, other people's lives, and I was so anyway. Basically, just turned it all. You know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. like boom, flipped it. He threatened to leave me because I didn't trust him. He threatened. He said he was going to leave because um, you know I was such a bitch. This entire day, the whole day was spent um, with him just berating me and screaming at me and calling me names, and um, it was horrible. It was horrible. You know, at one point in time, I was on the ground, just curled up in a ball, just crying. I vomited from the stress um, and from what he was saying to me and what he was doing to me. And at the end of the day, he said, look, let's just draw a line in the sand. Let's agree that we just aren't going to talk about this anymore. You know, I forgive you. He said that to me. I forgive you. And he had me so mind-screwed about that that I took it. I I was like, I'm so sorry. I, I just, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, just begging him to forgive me for this. Well, that week um, I had a, um, a seminar that I was going to, a conference in Arizona. And I left on Wednesday and came back on Sunday. I was sitting in the airport talking to a friend of mine. And she said, well, aren't you afraid he's going to move out while you're gone? It never crossed my mind that he would do something like that. I said, no, we're working on our marriage. I mean, we want to make this work. We don't make this happen. And so um, I got back from Arizona. He picked me up from the airport. I could tell he was a little distracted um, and stressed out. And, you know, I was you know, jibber-jabbering and rambling about this conference I went to because it was awesome and I was excited. I wanted to share him with him the things that I'd done and the people I'd met and all this other stuff. And he listened and he was fine and we, we went home and we went to bed and uh, the next day I always went to, we always went to my mom's for lunch and so I asked him if he was going to go to lunch and he said, no, I'm going to go watch a football game with and I was like, oh, okay, cool, um, go for it. Went to my mom's for lunch. I came home. I walked in the door, and immediately I did not hear our dog. And I thought, well, that's weird. Where's our dog? And um, about the time that I was picking up my phone to text him to ask him if he had taken the dog's name is Pig. <laughs> she's a pug, and she's massive, and she sounds like a pig, so her name is Pig. So I said, did you, where, where's Pig? Did you take Pig? And the text that I got was, I hate you. I never want to see you again. 
Um, I want, I don't want you in my life. I don't want this marriage. Um, I want a divorce and I don't ever want to see your face again. A text message. And so, you know, I went back to the bedroom and I was looking around and realized that he had taken a whole bunch of his stuff that he just moved things around to where I could really tell. Like he'd just taken certain things out of the closet um, and he like moved, moved his closet around to where it looked, it didn't look like he had taken anything. Um, and he told me in the text, I've rented a, an apartment across town. I just need to be by myself. I have a lot to work out. Um, I just messed up in my head. Um, and I just, I just need some time. Uh, but I wanted a divorce. Um, and that was, um, you know, you end a relationship that you've had for 10 years with somebody, um, via text after everything we went through, everything I'd done prison, helping him start a business, um, all of it. And he sent me a text message saying, I don't want to be with you anymore. Um, and that was devastating as you can imagine. So that was in January. And over the next few couple of months, you know, he would come over, we would talk, um, we would try to try to, we were trying to navigate, I thought we were trying to navigate a way back together, right? I'm so stupid, Chad, I was so stupid. He had to tell me about the other woman. I didn't, I didn't suspect it, not for a second did I suspect that any of this had to do with another woman, but it did. Um, and I found out just through a weird channel that, you know, he didn't live in an apartment by himself. He and her lived in a large three-bedroom, beautiful home a mile away from our family home. And it was probably, um, like I said, early March, he told me about it, he told me how they met. Um, he told me all about her, you know, I looked her up and found out that she actually left her husband of 31 years and her children and her children to be with my husband. Well, in mid early March, I guess it was mid March. He called me and he was just the most vulnerable person I'd ever heard him be. He was crying. He was sobbing. He said, I can't live this life without you. I hear songs on the radio and I start to cry because they remind me of you. I drive by certain places and I am just heartbroken at what I did to you. I'm so sorry. You know, I, I just hope you can forgive me. I want to come home and I let him come back. And, um, we were back together for probably about four weeks. And in that four weeks, I was the marriage police, you know, checking his phone, looking at his computer, doing all this, um, making sure he went to work. You know what I mean? Like, did you feel before he came back that you were in such a state and the only person that could make it better was him in a sense? Okay. hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, he was my drug, you know, um, he was my drug. Uh, there was a trauma bond that was with him that was so uh, very deep. It was almost like severing a part of my body off to not have him there. 
so we went to marriage therapy. We did all that stuff, you know. He was quote unquote coming clean to me about how he met her, where what was going on. Um, later on, I found even then, everything he told me was a lie. It was all a lie. And I asked him about it later, and I was like, "Why did you? I mean, come on! I already know you had an affair. Why lie?" And he said, "Well, I don't know." Oh, and going back to the poker night, I think I did leave out the fact that I did have a conversation with the guy's wife that he was supposedly at his house. There was no poker night. There was no poker night. He was with this woman. Mm-hmm. And I asked, and I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, X-hole. <laughs> I said, why did you do what you did to me? You saw me vomiting. You saw me on the floor. You saw how devastated I was at, what this, at, at this situation. You saw me blaming myself. Why did you just not tell me the truth? And he said, well, I couldn't tell you the truth. How can I tell you the truth? That was his mindset. Mm -hmm. He would have rather seen me completely and utterly destroyed than tell me the truth. Um, So last April... Toward the end of April, um, we were together. We were trying to work things out. I was extremely angry, as you can imagine, but he didn't allow me to be angry. You know, whenever I would start to become angry or upset about what he had done, he would say things like, see, this is why I don't think it's going to work between us. I can't be with you if you're going to be like that. You're going to have to just forget all of this has happened. You're going to have to forgive me. You're going to have to move forward, or we're not going to be able to be together. And, of course, that was inconceivable to me to not be with him. And so I started to just press down all of this, all of this, all of this. Well, at, toward the end of April, something happened, and I asked him a question about her. And he got very, very angry. I mean, like angry. I've seen the dude angry, and this was the angriest I've ever seen him. We were out somewhere. Um, we were in his truck. He pulled up in front of our house. He leaned over. He opened the truck door, and he shoved me out of the truck. Like, just shoved me out of his truck. And he just screamed at me, I don't love you. I hate you. I want to be with her. I don't want to be with you. I don't love you. I hate you. And he just drove away and left me. Um, and that was the weekend where I he called me and he said, um, you have 36 hours to get out of our house. I'm moving her in on Monday. And so this came out of the blue for me. And so I just kind of, I just was like, I just went into shock and straight into survival mode. And so I gathered my friends. I gathered my family. They all showed up for me. And within probably six hours, I had, I had taken everything that I could out of the house and I had left. He filed for divorce that Monday. He's an attorney, so Mm -hmm. he just went down and filed for divorce. But even after he filed for divorce, even after all this happened, he he started love bombing me again. Um, It was about two months afterwards, and you know, it was the "I missed you," "Can I see you?" um, that kind of thing. Even though he was living with her, he was living with her. Still talking to me, still trying to keep me in that loop, still trying to keep me on the line. And it worked. It worked for quite a while. 
um, there was a period of time whenever he told me he wanted to revoke our mar- our, our divorce. Because in our state, as long as either party hasn't remarried, you can have your divorce vacated, and it's like it never happened. If both of you go to the court and say, I want my divorce vacated, they will vacate it, and it never happened. And he said, I want to have our divorce vacated. I want to be with you, da 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 And that went on for probably about um, eight months where he was sort of back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and kept me on the line. And then March of this year – um, was the final, the final, the final, final. And what happened was I had written a blog. And I had been writing a blog about um, what I had, had experienced, the things he had done, how it felt, the things that had helped me in recovery. And I was just very honest with it. He found the blog. And he read the blog. And... Um, He sent me a text and he said, I don't ever want to see you or talk to you again as long as I live. Um, And this is after, you know, he had told me he loved me and he wanted to come home. So he reads the blog and I think what happened was in the blog he saw that I knew the truth about him. I knew who he was. I knew the demon underneath that handsome, handsome exterior. And he knew that he was exposed and he couldn't handle it. And so March of this year, we went um, was when we went completely no contact until <laughs> till July, um, actually like the first week of July. Out of nowhere, I got a text from him, and it said, um, I just wanted you to know I'm thinking about you, and I miss you, and I hope you're okay. Three days later, I found out the day he sent me that text is the day he married the woman that he had the affair with. Ugh. Yeah. Married her. Um, I, I, I just, I truly don't have words. I, you know, but that right there, that moment, that moment was the moment that I broke. Mm-hmm. The trauma bond broke. The hope um, I, in this book, Leave a Cheater, Gain a Life, the, the author talks about how we smoke the hopium pipe. And, you know, we hit that hopium real hard and we want to get high on that hopium. And I finally put the hopium down. And um, that was the day my healing truly started because that was the day that I was free from him. I used to hate the woman he had the affair with. Today, I pity her. Um, I worry about her, um, and I feel really sad for her because she's lost her children over him. So, so for your healing process, you know, this was the kicker as far as breaking the trauma bond. Uh, but before that, I guess, what had you started to do um, you know, when you have the fog and, you know, the fear and the obligation of guilt of doing things, when when that started to break and you started to see things for what they were, what were, I guess, the biggest things for you in that process to get to where you were, that the trauma bond was the last thing that kind of needed to be cut? So what I was doing, um, so there's this thing, it's called the uh, Wheel of Narcissistic Abuse. 
and it breaks down each stage. It's the, you know, the love bombing, the devaluation, and the discard phase. And in each one of those um, pieces of that pie, that wheel, are specific things that they do. And so what I did was I took that wheel, and I sat down with it one night, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, I wrote. Everything he did during the love bombing phase, everything that was going on during the discard phase, and everything that happened, or the devaluation phase, everything that happened with the discharge, or disc- discard, I'm sorry. And um, whenever I wrote it all down and I saw it in black and white, it helped me to be able to see, whoa, that was some fucked up stuff. I hope I can cuss because I cussed. Yes. <laughs> um, it, was, it was real bad. The other thing that was very helpful to me was that even in between, even before, you know, the marriage, his marriage and, and that really um, snapped, I had spent some time writing down a list of every single lie he told me, every single thing he did to me, every single reason that this was not a high-value man, every single reason, the things that I knew about, I knew about him taking money, I knew about him stealing from his employer, I knew about him like he's now, and I knew about him like going whenever he goes into houses, um, that he would steal things from houses, like little bitty things. You know, this is not a good human. And I had to write it all down. And anytime I felt like I was getting pulled back into him or, or, or missing him really bad or hurting really bad, I would pull out that list and I would read it and I would read it and I would read it and I would remember that's the truth because what happens um, just like how with addicts engaging uh, euphoric recall where you forget about the fact that, um, yeah, you were, you know, you peed your pants laying in a gutter, but you remember how good that substance made you feel. And you remember the, the, um, the positives about that. And that was exactly how it was with him. You know, I was trying to fight the, uh, euphoric recall that I was having. And so the only way I could do that was to remind myself of what a turd he really is. You know, he's a piece of shit that was covered with sparkles. And all I saw for the longest time were the sparkles. And I had to remind myself that underneath all those sparkles was just shit. And get to the point where all I saw, all I could remember, and all I would focus on were those things that he said, things that he did that were just so, so abusive and wrong and painful. So right now with the trauma bond cut, um, you're, you know, in a different space than you have been over the last, uh, for the duration of this relationship, Um, so I guess where are you now and, you know, with your background and your background in addiction, you know, specifically, um, how much does that kind of help you and in your own way, you know, when you help other people, how much does your, I guess the combination of, you know, the addiction aspect of things play into healing and I, you know, it, cause in a way it's, um, you know, and it, it can be, cause I always say like you know, to myself, like not to other people, but you know, the 12 step program, which not everyone agrees with, you know, is it, you know, 
a thing here for dealing with um, the after effects of uh, with uh, dealing with a narcissist and what you kind of have to go through to just wean your kind of self off. So, can I know I asked a million questions there, but can you uh, maybe weed through what I said and answer it a little bit? One hundred percent. So, like I told you, I do specialize in addiction and trauma recovery. Um, and the program that I work for, we are very heavily, um, 12 step based. And, um, I have actually worked the steps over this situation. My life was powerless and it was completely out of control because of him. Um, I, I could not do this recovery by myself. I had to have the help of my higher power. I had to have the help of my community I had to have the help of literature, um, and I had to learn how to ask for help because that's very, very difficult for me to ask for help. It's very difficult for me to just be like, man, my life is a real train wreck right now. I don't know if I want to live. There were times where I just didn't know if I wanted to live. And so, you know, I had to reach out and be able to reach out to my support system, you know, just like how an AA have a sponsor. Well, I, I found someone who had been through all of this type of thing, and she's my sponsor, quote unquote, you know, um, because she gets it. She understands it. It's critical to build your support group. It's critical to be to be able to tell your story. And to know you're heard and to know you're believed. Because when I tell my story, and honestly, I could have, I've left out so much of my story. I mean, there were so many little things that happened. There was another beach trip that was like exponentially worse than the first beach trip. It was a nightmare. It was, it was truly, truly a a living nightmare. Um, Little microaggressions that he would do, little things, just these little things that he did to just chip away and chip away and chip away at me and my identity, who I was and how I saw myself and how I believed I was. Um, so when you work a program, you know, a type of a program over this type of abuse, it's very, very helpful to understand what you own and what they own. And honestly, what the victim owns is very, very little. You know, what I own is that I ignored red flags. What I own is that I so much wanted this to be real. I so wanted it to be what he sold me it was going to be that I ignored so, so much. I have ownership in that. I should have hit the bricks the first time that I found out how deeply he had lied to me about so many things. You know, I own that. That's my ownership. So I do work over my stuff, my ownership um, that allowed this to happen to me. So I really, you know, like I said, I feel like that, that my background was very beneficial. I have, you know, <laughs> almost all my friends are therapists. So it's like I have, I have this built-in network of people who aren't going to take, aren't going to just, just sit there and listen to me and, and, oh, you poor, poor girl. You know what I mean? They're not going to do that to me. They're going to challenge me, and I love them, and I appreciate them. My best friend is a therapist, and, man, she's nailed me upside the head more. <laughs> you know, she's like. I'm getting in my car. I'm coming to your house. And I'm going to slap you outside the head with um, some sense. You know, you have to have people like that in your life. You have to. 
So I don't know if that answered your question or yeah. not. Like- so before we end off uh, your your episode, uh, I guess what is the biggest uh, piece of wisdom that you have for everyone uh, out there who's currently dealing with this in it or out of it and still struggling? One thing that I can't stress enough, uh, and it's extremely difficult, is no contact. Um, I, I've equated a whole lot to addiction as, as I've talked, and it is exactly the same as, as recovering from a substance. Um, if you were in recovery from, say, heroin addiction, you would stay as far away from that substance, from people who are influential in, in getting that substance to you. You would – the only way you're going to recover is to stay completely away from it, exactly the same with narcissistic abuse. You have to go no contact, and by no contact, that means no texting, no emailing, no calling, uh, no social media, um, ignore the flying monkeys that come around that say, hey, did you hear what blah, blah, blah did? You have to set your boundaries with people and say, I do not want to hear what this person is doing because it hurts me and it derails my recovery. So no contact is probably on the list of things that I would say that you have to do to be able to recover fully. Number one, no contact. Tell your story. Don't hide this in darkness because whatever stays in darkness grows. Whenever you bring this out into the light, it cannot survive. The more people you talk about with this, get a therapist. Tell a trusted friend about what's happening um, talk because the more you talk about it, the more you'll start to see, um, how bad it was. You know, I didn't realize how bad it was until I told my therapist, I think I, I wrote that in my, my email to you that my therapist looked at me in utter horror with her mouth hanging open. Me being a therapist, I realized, Oh, that was bad. I got the validation I needed that this was bad. Take good care of your health. Eat right. Yoga saved my life. Find something that you can do that you can practice that's just yours, that you can get back in touch with your body, your breath, your mind can heal. Make sure you do reality testing when these people are gaslighting you. Don't accept the reality they are trying to push on you. Use reality testing. Um, I read so many books, so many books. Um, if I can recommend one, I don't know. Is that okay? Yeah. The book that helped me the most is called Becoming the Narcissist Nightmare, How to Devalue and Discard the Narcissist While Supplying Yourself by... Shahida Arabi, A-R-A-B-I. That book was the most instrumental thing in my healing. Read, research, find groups. There's so many Facebook groups out there for specific um, narcissistic abuse support recovery. Tell your story. The more times you tell your story, the less power your story has over you. And someday what it does is it just becomes a story. It doesn't become who you are, what you are. It no longer defines your life. And remember, all of us heal differently. And if two years down the line um, you find yourself slipping back into the pain and, and into the tears, 
Um, love yourself. Forgive yourself. Be patient with yourself. Be gentle with yourself. Healing from narcissistic abuse is one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Probably going to be one of the hardest things you've done in your life. You can do it. You absolutely can do it. Thank you for being on our show today. And as I said uh, earlier when we were offline uh, just a second ago, that you know this episode um, w- w- is, was wonderful for many reasons. You you were able to articulate yourself uh, in a way where you were able to uh, send us on your journey. We were able to, to laugh. We were able to cry, um, be angry uh, with you. Uh, you were vulnerable. You explained so many things. And at the end here, you know, you've left us um, being empowered. And um, so I just want to thank you for for being you and sharing all of that uh, with us today. And I have a feeling this is going to be an episode where, uh, if people ask me like, um, you know, what episode should I listen to? And it has all the elements of story and learning and, and, you know, all this cross combination of, of everything. And, and this was, this will be, you know, when I go like, uh, go, go listen to, to Bell's story. You'll, you'll have a lot to learn. Um, and it's, you know, it's just a, a story in itself as well. Um, so I just want to thank you for, for, for being here from the bottom of my heart and everyone else out there who's listening for, for being part of the show. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm so grateful that I was able to do this. Well, everyone, it, it's over. This is the end of the episode. Thank you uh, for listening today and to all of you out there. I hope you have a good night.